From the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up with Public Health, Pandemic Response. Our guests today are Dr. Mary Koss and Dr. Elise Lopez. Elise Lopez is the Assistant Director of the Relationship Violence Program in the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health. She has worked in health promotion since 2004 in community and research settings. Dr. Lopez has worked primarily on programs that focus on the design, implementation, and evaluation of interventions related to sexual violence, sexual health, adolescent substance abuse, and trauma-informed care. Mary Koss is a Regents Professor at the Melanie Zuckerman College of Public Health. She published the first national study on sexual assault among college students in 1987. Her areas of expertise include epidemiology of violence with the emphasis on measuring violence against women cross-culturally, restorative therapeutic justice, violence prevention programs, program evaluation, and public policy focusing on violence against women. Today we have Dr. Mary Koss and Dr. Elise Lopez joining us. They have recently co-authored with Elizabeth Anderson an online article in Ms., a popular source for feminist news and information. The article was written in April during Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Unfortunately, this year's marches and fundraisers were canceled and moved to online platforms amidst the stay-at-home orders around the country to slow the spread of COVID-19. Their article is titled, College Students Are Still Being Raped During the COVID-19 Shutdown how prevention and response mechanisms must adapt. The article discusses the rise of alcohol consumption and social support systems being limited or reduced and the effects these can have on college students in regards to coercion or assault. You also discuss next steps or ways to address sexual violence during this pandemic. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us here. So there have been reports in the media over the last month and a half of college students partying throughout the stay-at-home orders around the country, both from students on spring break or at house parties in their communities. What is one of the biggest dangers aside from contracting COVID-19 during these actions? Well, why do we have to worry about sexual assault among college students when college is not in session and most students have been sent home? There's a bunch of things we don't think about, like many students, they are still around, their friends are still around, their roommates are still around. Many students live in a town where a lot of their school friends live in the same place, so they keep up their same social groups. It's not realistic, and parents have reported that it's very difficult to control the behavior of an adult child, or what you might call an emerging adult child, so they out. At least in our state, liquor stores are considered essential services, so they can buy liquor, they can go to parties held at people's apartments or held in, in uh, even in the parental home and drink, creating the same risk factors that happen in a bar or at a party that's held on campus when school's in session. The only difference is when they're partying in these private premises, there are a lot of controls, other people around who can take interventive action. And in this way, you've got potentially excessive drinking in an unsupervised environment when we know that alcohol is probably the strongest single thing that 
co-occurs with sexual assault among this age group. So that's kind of what we're worried about. There's other things, and those are, so what happens if it happens? Is it the school's responsibility if it involves students, but they're not on campus? What can victims obtain for support services? What's still going? How do they find out what's still available? Those are some questions that arise from the background picture I just painted. I think some of the other important things that piggyback on that idea of alcohol use and raising risk for sexual assault is that when students aren't on campus, they're not being inundated with these prevention messages along the way. So there's a lot of active prevention that happens on campus, workshops, prevention programs, things like that, policies that keep people accountable for what they're doing. But there's also a lot of passive prevention, and that's going to be things like signs that people see, brochures that are left out, things that are said in classrooms or in emails that go out to students that are regularly reinforcing these ideas about what is healthy and expected behavior on campus. Without those things, they don't have that general guidance that's coming to them day after day about how they should be expected to behave add that into the idea that these are young people and it's developmentally appropriate for them to be interested, particularly interested in risk and risky behavior and more likely to engage in it rather than to stop themselves. So if we have all of this happening at once, you really have all of these factors that are increasing risk but not really increasing protective factors that are going to keep these situations from happening. Yeah, I really, I really agree. It's kind of comical when you try to think about a party where you're trying to wear an N95 mask at the same time that you're drinking and a small apartment with even 10 people trying to maintain a six foot distance from everyone when half of the people are there looking for potential romantic partners, which does involve getting close to people. And most people don't find an N95 mask sexy. So if you're trying to well, you know, speak show yourself, yourself to others, then you really want to look your best. Can you fill the audience in on some quick statistics on sexual assault among the college-aged population not during a pandemic? Come on, Mary, that's you. You're a resident <laughs> epidemiologist you here. You, you talk about it. <laughs> talk about what you tell your students, because I can talk about what the research says. It's, you know. Why don't you do that first? Okay. There are tons of studies about how much sexual assault there is among college students. Interpreting the numbers depends on thinking about, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about rape alone, the most serious end of the continuum? Or are we talking about a whole spectrum of unwanted experiences that, that can include um, groping and unsolicited pictures on your social media down to you know, that level? The most commonly quoted figures that you see are one in four or one in five college women um, have been raped since some recall period in their life. Some studies use an age that will include high school and college. Uh, I prefer that because 
my work, we know that half of the rapes that occur occur in high school. Um, so I don't want to lull parents into a false sense of security that, well, I'm just talking about colleges and they don't have to worry about their kids because their kids are only in high school. There are other studies, though, that limit their numbers just to when students have arrived at campus up to the point in time where they're taking the survey. And when you measure it that way, you get numbers that are more like one in five if you limit it to rape and they get to one in four if you include um, a, a wider spectrum of acts. I think the bottom line, though, is that whatever the exact number is, if you could do the perfect study and if other people would do the same study as you so that we could repeat it and know that it's a reliable finding, whatever the result would be, we know enough now to say it's a number that's way too high and that is scary to, to parents and should disabuse us of our notions that this is something that happens to other people's kids, not our kids. And Elise, Dr. Koss suggested that you first answer this question on how you would explain it to your students because our audience is the public health workforce. Do you think that should be conveyed in a way that would have more impact for people working in public health? Honestly, I think that we underestimate the public health workforce and even public health college students around their ability to understand the details of why those stats are often slightly different and they want to know as well. I've What I've started to see are public health professionals who really want to know the difference between those two things and so that they can communicate that better. But also it's showing us that public health professionals are moving away from the part of the population that says, oh, there are different statistics that come out. That must mean that this problem doesn't actually exist or that we're overestimating in it. So that said, I think when we look at other related statistics, it reinforces those high numbers. So if we look at alcohol involvement in general, with college students, they're at the very high end of the spectrum of alcohol-involved rapes. We're looking at about three quarters, almost, of the rapes that happen with college students involving alcohol in some way, which is massive when we think about that risk factor and what we need to be doing with that population. When we look at residential campuses, and where sexual assaults are occurring, they're mostly taking place in residence halls, chapter houses uh, in Greek communities, and in private off-campus residences. These are not occurring by a stranger rapist popping out of the bushes or in a dark parking lot in the middle of the night. Do those things happen? Certainly. But those are what we tend to see in the media, and they really don't make up the vast majority of rapes that we're seeing happening with college students. These are things that are happening in private spaces and in private spaces where people generally believe that they're going to be safe. When we think about residence halls on college campuses, yes, we think of that being a place where there are a lot of students, but we also say, okay, there are RAs there, there are locked doors where you need a key card to come in at night, et cetera. 
while those things are important, they're not enough to keep students safe from sexual assaults happening in those spaces. So in some ways, there's a little bit of complacency there that I think we've had on college campuses where really we're actually not doing enough in terms of things like environmental barriers to preventing sexual assault. I think it's a positive offshoot of COVID that the public health role is, as it should be, so prominent. It's really helping the public understand some of our central uh, practices and terminology so that, that they're not unfamiliar with concepts like risk factors, protective factors, um, prevalence rates, and the idea that it's important to have a study peer-reviewed. What does that mean? And what, why isn't everything that you hear coming out from scientists something that you can just accept without thinking more about it or without asking for some expert opinion about it? So that, that really encourages me. And I, I think it, it layers onto what Elise is saying, is observing in public health students that is going to create a good legacy for our field, specifically in the area of sexual assault. Oftentimes people aren't aware that sexual assault is part of the CDC mission, and that in fact it is one of the major uh, focuses of the National Injury Prevention Center of CDC. So I, I hope that by this increasing public health literacy and increasing awareness of the field of public health in general, that this is gonna help us communicate the importance of, of listening up about uh, sexual victimization and perpetration by college students, because this is a public health issue. And we know from research all over the world that it is also accurately described as a pandemic. So I was thinking about, you have another project working with bar staff and bar owners, and that project works with the employees of bars to train them to reduce underage drinking and overconsumption, as well as to prevent the escalation of physical violence. Is there a way to kind of translate that work into, you know, liquor stores and other places that now these college students are buying their alcohol and I would like to see some kind of public health education for people who work in liquor stores or other places that are selling alcohol because they're seeing increased volume of sales especially of hard liquor right now and maybe they might be seeing things or situations where it would be beneficial for them to make a comment or to say something if they see an issue with safety. The work that we do with alcohol serving establishments is with places that have what's called an on-premises liquor license, which means that they sell liquor for people to consume at that actual place. Whereas liquor stores, grocery stores, places like that have what's called an off-premises liquor license which means that people can buy it there, but they can't consume it there. They have to consume it somewhere off the premises. So the reason that I tell you that 
is that one of the ways that we've been able to engage bars in this work is to tie in their responsibility legally for patron safety with their on-premises liquor license with sexual assault prevention. For bars, they tend to think about patron safety in terms of things like physical violence prevention, drunk driving prevention, and under at least our state statutes, but many state statutes, bars with an on-premises liquor license are responsible for preventing patrons from harming themselves or others after consuming alcohol. So that might be something like drunk driving and hitting somebody. If that can be traced back to over-service at the bar and they reasonably could know that there was a problem or potential problem and they didn't take reasonable steps to prevent it, they could be potentially liable. So part of what we've done that I think has made this program so successful is tying sexual assault back to that and expanding their horizons about what patron safety means. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen light bulbs go off with people and that helps being able to do that. So with places that only have an off-premises liquor license, one of the hurdles that we might face as public health professionals is getting them to care and think of it as their issue. With our Safer Bars program, we've really used the model of public health that tries to pull people along depending on where they are, right? We can't train people in bystander intervention in a bar and expect them to use those skills if they don't already believe it's a problem and that it's relevant to them and that they can do something about it. It's the same thing with liquor stores or grocery stores. We have to get them to believe it's an issue first and that it's relevant to them and that they can do something about it before we can expect them to do something. A huge challenge then is we don't have a lot of time. We don't have months and years to get these folks on board. So that's the long roundabout way of saying, this is one of those public health problems where we know what a really good solution would be, but implementing it in a way that's going to be effective has some barriers that we really need to, to figure out how to work out. We have to get the community to understand this problem and how it relates to having things like liquor stores called essential businesses and why it's not acceptable. I mean, like you say, our project was designed to work with liquor servers in bars. So we're dead in the water right now because bars are closed. It would be possible to design a whole new program that was aimed at off-premises sellers of uh, alcohol. But as Elise mentioned, there isn't time to do that. So what can you envision that could happen really fast? Well, try to print up some really quick one-sheeters and uh, go around in the neighborhoods where the college students are still living in apartments and try to convince the alcohol outlets in those areas to keep a supply of these papers on hand and hand them out to the people who come in and who are purchasing obviously a larger supply of alcohol than is necessary for one family to consume, you know, in a reasonable period of time to just provide them with a information sheet that 
brings to their attention the, the linkage of poor sexual decision-making and consuming alcohol. Yeah, one of the things that I've started to think about recently around that is whether liquor suppliers or sellers might be willing to restrict sales in terms of how much people can buy at one time or how much they stock at one time. Just like we've seen with things like toilet paper or Lysol, at first people went crazy about it and stores were selling out, people couldn't get access to those products, people were hoarding and there were safety issues, right? People were getting into fights or even getting trampled in some places over toilet paper. So a lot of retailers have started limiting how much you can buy at one time. And that's a huge, uh, like they're basing that on community safety. So could we use that same argument with uh, establishments that sell alcohol? Would they see this as enough of a community safety issue to restrict how much they're stocking or how much they sell in one day or how much one person can buy at a time? I don't know if they would go for it, but it's something I've been thinking of exploring. Of course, one can come back to that and say, okay, well, um, just because somebody can only buy one bottle of vodka at a time at this place doesn't mean they're not going to go somewhere else and buy another one. Yes, that's true. But it's the same with things like toilet paper or Lysol. If we increase the amount of work it takes for people to engage in that behavior, they might give up a little bit sooner on how much of that thing they're gonna to try to get at a time. So I think it would be really interesting to look at. Uh, I don't know that that's being done anywhere yet, but I think it could be a, a short-term measure to explore. Yeah, I'm thinking not so much that, like if, if bars reopen in a couple weeks, we'll go back to the, the focus that we received the federal funding to be doing. But if the students don't return to campus in the fall, then, then uh, our concern and our, our desires to prevent excessive alcohol consumption and sexual assault related to alcohol, we're going to need to shift, to shift focus. I'm not real encouraged that you could uh, convince a merchant that they should sell less of something. And probably there is also a counter argument that uh, at least they can identify high-risk people who are coming through with enough um, enough alcohol to give a party for a battalion. Uh, that you know that this this is definitely a situation mandating giving out a warning sheet. Uh, I'm not sure that as yet these that liquor sellers, off-premise liquor sellers, consider it their responsibility how people use the alcohol once they're gone. But that's a certain, certainly, if the students stay away long enough, I think that that's a policy direction that makes, you know, makes sense to pursue, um, which, which the ideas that you're putting forward would, would um, definitely be a core of an, an, a policy advocacy position so that we could try to reduce the amount of liquor that's sold and increase the effort of, of getting it. It's definitely an interesting avenue to explore, and I wonder if there are any other things that could be similar to that, because an, another counter argument would be 
there are, liquor stores are still open and where toilet paper is limited by an actual physical supply, somebody who wants to buy more alcohol is going to more locations, potentially exposing themselves and others to more virus. So there are definitely things to, to consider. One of the last questions that, that I want to ask is, it's clear that education needs to continue and the outlets have been pushed to being liquor stores and grocery stores for alcohol now. For this educational material, do you recommend any specific sources where business owners could go and print those, uh, the flyers out, things that have been proven to be effective or are recommended? No, because I don't think any existing sources like that. I mean, there are maybe, there are general uh, fact sheets and flyers out there um, about statistics around sexual assault, especially around alcohol, but I don't know that there are any that would be specific to hand out from grocery stores or, I don't know. Mary, do you have any ideas about? I don't, I don't think something, I, I don't think anything like that exists. In fact, I don't think that this concern has really been discussed. I mean, the, the public health literature mainly focuses on what happens if you decrease alcohol outlet density or what happens if you increase the taxes on liquor and when you measure police calls and when you measure the number of sexual assaults that are, are reported. But I don't think, uh, I don't think until this virus had, that forced the students out of the bars and into private places, we didn't think about the individual purchasers. I know that there are some institutions, for an example, where they've made institutional policies that students cannot have kegs at their parties, that they have to sell, I mean, they have to drink beer at their parties out of um, individual bottles or cans. So that's, you know, that's one way to try to approach making it more difficult to consume really large quantities of alcohol. So institutions have thought about it to that extent, but I don't think that off-premise liquor servers have really, no. I mean, this is something that the current situation caused us to think about and get alarmed about. I wonder if there could be some kind of very basic flyer or printout developed that could be put up at cash registers. So, for example, a lot of cash registers have just on a plain piece of white printout paper posted right there at the cash register things about Surgeon General's warnings about smoking or drinking during pregnancy. I don't know if those are legally mandated by some statute um, or whether that's state or federal, but could there be something similar that just had a message around, you know, purchasing and then consuming large amounts of alcohol could lead to sexual assault. I don't know, the way that they do about alcohol and birth defects on those same signs. I think that's a great idea. I think it is something that has to be mandated by policy and you'd have to fine tune the message because I kind of think that probably if you're gonna do that, you'd want intimate partner and sexual violence to you know, both, both be included because you're speaking not just to the college student community in this means, but then you'd be speaking to the community at large. But I think it's a great idea that's a longer term policy objective and I think a shorter term possibility is to prepare 
some kind of like almost piece of paper that people give you to put in your bag with your product, hoping that they'll get home and somebody will take a look at it. And it'll begin to implant the idea that by buying liquor in these quantities and that it increased everybody's risk for things that are undesirable to happen. Yeah. And I think be, even before there's some kind of statute around that or mandate, one way to do it could be just like we do with the bar program where we have a material or public health professionals have a material that they develop and then find owners or managers who are willing to put it up regardless of whether it's happening anywhere else. Although the caveat is that the way that we're most successful at doing that is pounding the pavement and meeting people in person. So you'd have to put out a lot of calls and emails to make it work, but I think there could be some responses. But. Yeah, that is very interesting. Okay, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I have one last quick question. Do you have any tips or suggestions for the public health workforce to disseminate messaging about which services are still operating in regards to individuals needing support? For people who still need support, I think that it's still worthy for a lot of these organizations that have public media to continue using those things whether it's stuff that's on buses or benches, things like that. Radio ads, people are still listening to the radio. Can they put things on Spotify locally, depending on what kind of money they have? But really thinking about what kind of media in particular their target population is using. So for college campuses that still want to let their students know that say the Title IX office is open or survivor advocacy is open or even just to put out prevention messages, they might consider putting sponsored ads on things like TikTok and Instagram, which I only know about because of my children. Um, otherwise, I'd say Facebook, but I've learned that people are not on Facebook anymore, including college students. So, you know, <laughs> like that, sponsored ads that get that kind of messaging out there are very easy to do. They're not cost prohibitive to most people. I think a lot of students are getting inundated with emails right now from their institutions, whether that's from administration or from faculty teaching their courses. So at this point late in the semester, I don't know how effective email should be. I worry about the fact that at a lot of institutions, what we've heard is that those resources were not even mentioned in the first COVID related emails and resource emails that went out to students. And I think Unfortunately, that speaks to where this issue is on the priority list for colleges and universities. What do you think? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that college uh, websites are a place where public health practitioners could nudge institutions in a couple ways. First of all, maybe about six out of 10 universities don't have any information at all on their websites about the links between alcohol and sexual assault. And that, that kind of material needs to be developed in the shortest possible time frame. The second thing is, like Elise is saying some of the specific services, but it would be very good to call people's attention to specifically for sexual misconduct 
incidents, here's the services that are still operating. Because to my knowledge, virtually nothing that has to do with dealing with sexual assault or violations of the college behavior code on appropriate sexual conduct, all of those services are still operating. But I think most people would assume they're not. And I think most people would maybe assume that if it happened while I'm away from campus, it's not the university's business, but it actually still is if you're a student of that institution. And they have, you know, remote ways of doing telemedicine, telecounseling. So this is the kind of information I think public health professionals could suggest to their local education institutions that get on to the websites where students may go um, looking for all sorts of information, but hopefully it could be prominent enough that they would find it on their way to looking for other stuff, or they would certainly find it if they were specifically looking for sexual assault information. Great. Thank you, Dr. Koss and Dr. Lopez for joining us today for writing this article and bringing this issue to light. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was fun talking to you.